The ancient Silk Road was a trade route along which camel caravans brought silk and other treasures from China to the West, leaving a rich loam of stories and legends in their wake. But over the last two years or so, a rising China has set out to define the concept of a new Silk Road, or the more clunky-sounding One Belt, One Road initiative. But what are the aims of this new policy, and how does it relate to China's global ambitions? I'm James King, the Emerging Markets Editor, and with me to discuss this question on the line from Beijing is Tom Mitchell, our Beijing correspondent. Tom, welcome. Can you explain, first of all, the scale of this new Silk Road undertaking, and what exactly is China trying to achieve here? Well, the important thing about this is it is probably the signature foreign policy of Xi Jinping's administration, or perhaps we should say it's the signature soft power projection policy of the Xi Jinping administration. Of course, China's adopted a much more aggressive posture in terms of its territorial claims in the East China Sea and South China Sea. But what they're trying to achieve with this new Silk Road is basically it's a vision of an interconnected Eurasian landmass. Expressways, railways, high-speed railways, airports, maritime ports that essentially link China through Central Asia into the Middle East and as far as continental Europe by sea, ironically, the road bit as opposed to the Central Asian belt bit, the old maritime links through Southeast Asia up into the Middle East and really even across the Indian Ocean into Africa. If all the money that has been mooted comes to fruition, we could see something potentially on the scale of the Marshall Plan. Not as big as the Marshall Plan, but that is the grandiosity, I suppose, of Xi's vision. So this is a really big deal. Could you give us a bit more detail on what chances you think China has of successfully making this project work? I mean, it does sound hugely ambitious. It's a really big deal in terms of the ambition, but we have to be really careful about what we think is realistic. So will there one day be high-speed railways and expressways surging through Xinjiang, China's northwestern region, into Kazakhstan and beyond, and with that flowing huge new wave of commerce and prosperity? We don't know. That would be very expensive. There are not a lot of people in Central Asia, for example. So while there is this grand vision, the practicalities are extremely, extremely difficult. On the other hand, when you listen to Chinese officials talk about infrastructure links into Southeast Asia through Burma to the Indian Ocean, giving them a very important route for, for example, energy sources that can travel by pipeline across Burma into China. Or you just think about expressways and high-speed rails going down the Southeast Asian peninsula, potentially unifying China with a market of 500 million people in ASEAN. That is something that I think has a lot more potential, and that would really be transformative. And in some respects, the infrastructure development connecting China, especially its uh, Yunnan province in the southwest, into Southeast Asia, that's already underway. You don't necessarily need a new Silk Road to make that happen, but it is quite a compelling vision. And that's one thing that Xi Jinping is very good at. He's very good at the vision thing. So this is sort of empire building through infrastructure, I guess. But I suppose quite a lot of things can go wrong. And what do you think the stumbling blocks might be to the realization of some of these ambitions? One big stumbling block is 
just local politics. Local politics everywhere is, is really complicated. And we've seen a very good example of this in Sri Lanka, where China was very close to the previous president of Sri Lanka, who had authorized a lot of Chinese investments in airports and ports in the country. And this is something that predates Xi Jinping. This is something that was happening under the administration of Hu Jintao, the previous president. Very unexpectedly, not just to the Chinese, but the entire world, that president, Rajapaska, he lost in an election in January. The opposition came into power, and they weren't friends with Beijing. So all of a sudden, all these investment projects, these massive commitments, I think something upwards of $5 billion U.S. dollars in Chinese investment in Sri Lanka, were threatened. Now, they haven't been canceled, but the new government has been asking all kinds of awkward questions about these investments. Were they done in a transparent manner? Was any corruption involved with uh, officials from Rajapaska's administration? Why is the interest rate on these loans so high? So there's a very good example of potentially a core part of this new Silk Road, quote-unquote, that's really kind of gone belly up for China. It's got a lot of problems to mend there. And something similar we've seen happening in Burma, where China's been building a lot of infrastructure, a big dam there being postponed, if not canceled. So just local politics reacting to Chinese investments. Very difficult for China to ensure that massive projects in other countries go smoothly. It's very good at laying infrastructure through China proper, but it's got a very, the Chinese Communist Party has a very good grip on politics in China. It doesn't have such a good grip on politics in Burma or Sri Lanka or let alone India or Kazakhstan. So could you say in a way that one of the main obstacles is this sort of basic mismatch between China's own political system and the political systems of the countries that it comes into contact with, or, or is that too simplistic? No, it's certainly an element. And when you speak to senior party officials, they recognize this. They recognize that traditionally they, and actually more importantly, the managers of large state-owned enterprises that are directly involved in these investments. This is not Xi Jinping sort of making decisions about how many wars to construct at a certain port in Sri Lanka. This is all being done by managers of large Chinese companies. But there is a recognition now that we didn't really understand the risks involved in working in other countries with different political cultures. We've learned some hard lessons. We need to be more careful about that. We need to, for example, as they have been doing in Burma recently, starting talking to opposition parties while they are still opposition parties. That's something that China has never wanted to do. It always deals with the party in power. It never recognized opposition parties because that's, in a way, interfering in another country's internal affairs. But they now realize if they don't do that, very big investments can be undone when another administration comes to power. Thank you very much indeed for that, Tom, and for joining us on the line from Beijing. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.